Welcome to the Plenty of Guests podcast, the podcast with plenty of great Australian stories. I'm your host, Luke Sutton, and today's story is entitled The Green Flying Monster. But before we get into today's story, I thought I'd ask you a question which I'll answer at the end of the podcast. And my question for you today is this. Now, the QF-30 flight experienced an explosion. What was that explosion? And I'll make it multiple choice. Was it A, breast implants? Was it B, a crate of popcorn? Was it C, two bombs by independent bomb makers going off at exactly the same time? Or was it D, the oxygen cylinder to the oxygen masks that are deployed in case there's an emergency? And as I said, I'll answer that at the end of the podcast. But now, time for today's story. Let's start today's story with an actual reenactment of the last transcript between Valentich and Tula Marine Airport, radio controller Steve Robbie, also known as Air Traffic Control. On the 21st of October 1978, 20-year-old Frederick Valentich was intending to fly a Cessna 182L light aircraft from Moorabbin Airport located in Victoria to Cape Otway and then on to King Island, which was a further 125 miles away or 237 kilometres. He never made it. The transcript is as follows. Melbourne, this is Delta Sierra Juliet. Is there any known traffic below 5,000 feet? No known traffic. Seems to be a large aircraft below 5,000 feet. What type of aircraft is it? I cannot confirm. It's four bright, seems to me like landing lights. The aircraft has just passed over me at at least 1,000 feet above. Is there any Air Force aircraft in the vicinity? No known aircraft in the vicinity. Seems to be playing some sort of game. He's flying over me. Well, the Sierra Juliet, it's not an aircraft, it's... Can you describe the, uh, the aircraft? As it's flying past, it's a long shape. Cannot identify it, it has such speed. It's before me right now, Melbourne. How large would the, um, the object be? Seems like it's stationary. What it's doing right now is orbiting. The thing is just orbiting on top of me. It's also got a green light and a sort of metallic-like. It's shiny on the outside. It's just vanished. Is the aircraft still with you? Say again. Is the aircraft still with you? Now approaching from the southwest. The, the engines are rough idling. The thing is coughing. What are your intentions? My intentions are... To go to King Island, Melbourne, that strange aircraft's hovering on top of me again. It's hovering and it's not an aircraft. Even though reenactment was only minutes long, the original conversation happened, of course, over a longest time span. We have edited all the various pauses between the transmissions. But Valentich and his plane was never seen again. So, what happened? If you were to research this subject on the internet, you would probably be overloaded with theories, statistics and likelihoods. In truth, we simply don't know. 
I have dissected all the scenarios and placed them in three main categories. Foul play, planned and accidental. Let's start with the first one, foul play. If his disappearance was a result of foul play, then in all likelihood it was more of a case of him being in the wrong place at the wrong time than him being specifically a chosen target. Even Valentich used such terms in his last transmission as chasing, playing, hovering and orbiting, which can easily be interpreted into a hostile intent. If it was foul play, then again we can break this suggestion up into two more subcategories. First, aliens from another planet, and second, a secret military weapon. Let's again take the first suggestion, aliens from another planet. This suggestion is often put forward because some people claim that such things as hovering, being able to move at incredible unidentified speeds, and being able to travel 6,000 feet upwards within a minute and 15 seconds, was technology that was far ahead of the capabilities of humans at that particular time. Simply put, this is not true. By this time, the FA-18 was already in operation in Australia, and could travel at supersonic speeds, as well as the Harrier jump jet, which could hover, even stealth bombers were in the early stages of design. From as early as the 1950s, Australia had already began making remote-controlled aircrafts, which were reported to be able to travel at 500 miles per hour. Therefore, nothing described in Valentich's last audio transmission was beyond human comprehension. The other question is, what would beings millions of years ahead of our own technology want with a Cessna 182L light aircraft? Are they like collectible antiques back in their own planet or something? Was a 20-year-old not-so-bright pilot who had a habit of eating daily at McDonald's really on their supermarket shopping list? Even Valentich's first impression of the aircraft is that it was military. In other words, human. This brings us to our second suggestion in this foul play category, a secret military weapon. This explanation practically stems from the notion that 1. What Valentich was reporting was accurate. 2. That there was a deliberate government cover-up afterwards in the hope of national security. And 3. That there were other eyewitnesses to the event. The first eyewitness that needs to be mentioned is Roy Manifold. On that same fateful day, Roy had set up a time-lapse camera on a tripod overlooking the shoreline to capture the sunset from the Cape Otway lighthouse. The string of pictures was at 6.47pm, 20 minutes before Valentich reported to have problems. Though Roy, when he took the photos, had not seen anything suspicious, still, when he developed the picture, that's when he noticed a fast-moving object exiting the water. The distance the object moved between frames, relative to the clouds in the background, indicate a speed of about 200 miles per hour. The object seems to be surrounded by a cloud-like vapour slash exhaust residue. These photos have been authenticated as legit by experts at Kodak, the chief photographer of the Australian newspaper, and aerospace engineers and physicists from the American organisation Ground Service Watch. They even performed a computer analysis 
on the photos and were able to determine that the object was 1.6 kilometres away, possibly metallic, and about 6 metres in diameter. If this size is correct, then evidently it is not large enough to swallow a plane. However, I personally find it hard to place any credit to experts and their findings on photos. Take for instance the UFO photo sightings of Gulf Breeze in 1987. Those were originally authenticated as legit by physicists and various photographic experts who were able to come up with all manner of statistics and figures as to the craft's size. Now, however, the photos have been proven to be a hoax. This does not mean I believe that Roy Manifold faked his photographs. Instead, I'm just stating you have to be careful how much credence you place on so-called experts who know how to cater figures to be in their favour. In any case, there is no conclusive proof that the thing that Roy photographed was even the same thing Valentich saw with four lights. The second eyewitness needing to be mentioned is an anonymous Apollo Bay man, aged 47, with his two nieces, one named Tracy, and his son, who was recorded in the October the 11th, 2000 Herald Sun newspaper to have witnessed from Barham Valley Road a green light hovering above a plane as it entered into a steep nosedive just off Cape Marengo, southeast of Apollo Bay, between 5 to 15 kilometres offshore. Though he originally told friends and acquaintances of the sighting on the exact day it happened, still he held on to this knowledge fearing ridicule. This statement has been regarded as significant to the investigation for two reasons. One, because it was recorded before the 1982 transcripts, which released Valentich's description of a green light for the first time, and two, because it was nowhere near where they originally searched for the plane, and so it may explain why they were unable to find it. Other witnesses also have come forward after the disappearance was made public and reported seeing an erratic moving green light in the area or having mentioned seeing fast moving bright lights. Few people claimed that they saw the Cessna turn early from Cape Otway to the direction of King Island. One eyewitness claimed to have seen a plane towing a glider around the Apollo Bay area before Valentich even set out. While others claim to have seen sources, some claim triangles, and the list goes on. However, all this eyewitness testimony seems to amount to a whole lot of nothing. Why? Simply put, Valentich was never picked up on radar at Melbourne Airport, and unlike eyewitnesses, radar has no need to lie or exaggerate. Some suggest that Valentich must have been flying too low at 1,400 metres to be picked up on the long-range radar scan, and that air traffic controllers would have only started to look for the aircraft on radar when it reported to have engine problems. However, it must be noted that air traffic control subsequently picked up the search aircraft quite clearly, even though they were flying as low as 153 metres. It appears that on that Saturday night, the radar conditions were exceptionally good. So good, in fact, that controllers noted what are known as anomalous propagation. These phenomena 
only occur when conditions are so good that the radar beams hug the Earth's surface. Under such conditions, the landmass of King Island, which is 215 metres above sea level, is occasionally picked up on radar. Also, on this particular occasion, air traffic control was monitoring radar throughout Valentich's whole radio conversation because it seemed dramatic. Some suggest that some sort of stealth aircraft may have hidden Valentich's plane, but this is only possible if the stealth aircraft was perfectly placed between Valentich and the radar. But since Valentich said he was orbiting, and that the aircraft was below him and then above him, this seems very unlikely. Therefore, according to most air traffic controllers, Valentich was never where he said he was, and so the whole eyewitness testimony is also brought into question. The other problem is that all these eyewitness accounts were dotted down after the media released their news on the event. Though some investigators claim that the 1982 radio transcripts were the first to mention a green light, I have discovered this not to be true. Newspapers leaked that same information worldwide, practically from the start. So the Apollo Bayman 22 years later mentioning a green light is really not significant. However... The 17 seconds of unexplained noise at the end of Valentich's final transmission seemed to indicate that something may have hit the plane. The sound was described as metal scraping. Haynes, a former researcher at NASA, analysed the noise and described it as 36 separate bursts with fairly constant start and stop pulses bounding each one, with no discernible patterns in time or frequency. One suggestion offered is that the noise is simply Valentich altering his seat back and forth in the cockpit, as he always placed the radio mic in his lap instead of putting it back in the rack, and because of this, sometimes the microphone would activate without Valentich even being aware he was transmitting. But where is the tape now? This is what has led many people to surmise a government cover-up. Unbelievably, The original traffic control tapes, which were in the form of a cassette, were inexplicably wiped over. Three copies of those original recordings were sent out prior to its erasure. One copy went to Guido, Valentich's father, and the other two went to experts. All three men were forced to sign a disclosure notice preventing them to ever reveal the tape's content to any member of the public for 70 years. Why? Is there something damning on it? Also, Roy Manifold, who took the photos at Cape Otway, placed the original negatives in a safety deposit box at his bank. A short time later, though, the bank was forced to reveal that they had somehow lost those negatives. Also, the searches for the plane were largely hindered by the find of an oil slick, approximately where Valentich's aircraft was thought to have gone down. Analysis showed it to be a weak mix of marine diesel though. Pieces of metal and other debris were also recovered, but they too were not considered to have come from the aircraft. Was this coincidence or a planned diversion? Even the radar recordings placed in the original investigation file look like they've been modified. So can the lack of radar even be trusted? Not long after the disappearance of Valentich, 
Frederick's mother contacted the late French marine explorer Jack Cousteau to enlist his help in the search for wreckage of the aircraft. Reports from the time claim Cousteau agreed to help but was denied permission by authorities. Those who work at Moorabbin Airfield were approached by government officials and warned not to talk to the press or anyone else about rumours of UFOs and they were also not to disclose the plane's registration. Officials had also ordered Rhonda Rushton not to speak to the media. To top it all off, Valentich's family could only access his bank accounts 10 years after he vanished. Two further important questions need to be raised with this suggestion of a secret military weapon. First, was it one of ours, or was it from another nation spying on Australia? And the main question which everyone really wants to know is, what was it? Especially since Valentich twice said it was not an aircraft. Was it a heat-seeking missile? A stealth bomber? A drone? A weather balloon? The investigation team was quick to dismiss the possibility of weather balloons. The two that were in that area had burst at 6.30pm, and the next ones that were sent out was at 11pm. I will also put forward here for the first time another suggestion, which as of yet I can't see that it has ever been linked to the possible reason for Valentich's disappearance. My other suggestion is that it might have had something to do with weather warfare. Weather warfare had already began to be such a big problem that at a Geneva convention a treaty was opened prohibiting hostile weather warfare. The treaty then entered into force on the 5th of October 1978. Hence, weather warfare was still freshly being experimented on worldwide during Valentich's disappearance. And now, according to the United Nations, it was highly illegal. Could this explain the need of a government cover-up? Well, that concludes our first part of our podcast on Frederick and the Green Flying Monster. Join me next time as we discuss the other two theories, why a lot of people believe it was a publicity stunt, and why when it comes to Frederick, a lot of people believe it was an accident waiting to happen. And we'll also discuss other facts that truly make this a bizarre mystery. But now time to answer the question I left you with. Now I don't believe in destiny. Personally I believe we are all free moral agents. Yet, having said this, I'm fully aware that strange events and coincidences occasionally take place that appear to be that of fate. One such happening is that of Qantas Flight 30, also known as VHOJK. On the 25th of July 2008, Having left Hong Kong en route to Melbourne while cruising at 29,000 feet, the QF-30 experienced an explosion. One of the seven emergency oxygen bottles had exploded, ripping a giant hole in the fuselage, causing the plane not only to be depressurized within 13 seconds, but also to seriously dip to one side. But it gets worse. You see, 
Because it was one of the emergency oxygen tanks, many of the oxygen masks that did drop down because there was now an emergency no longer worked. So many people who had fitted their oxygen mask on was still being asphyxiated. But wait, it gets worse. The oxygen cylinder then shot up through the cabin floor like an airborne torpedo and struck the R2 door handle, knocking it on an open position. So, one of the outside doors is now in an open position. But wait, it gets worse. The impact with the door turned the cylinder upside down as it continued to shoot upwards, crushing a locker, and then finally falling to the floor and being sucked back out through the very same hole it made in the plane. The problem was that on its missile journey, the cylinder had damaged 85 wires. This prevented the first officer from flying the aircraft. Also, the plane's landing systems now did not work. The left flight management computer, the left very high frequency omnidirectional radio range navigational instrument, and the anti-skid braking system all didn't work. So let's just do a quick recap. There's a hole in the fuselage which is sucking debris towards the jet engines. There's no oxygen getting to most people in the plane. One of the plane's door handles is in the open position. None of the plane's essential landing systems work. The autopilot does not work. The first officer's controls don't work. You would have to say that these people were destined to die. But, here's the twist. No one actually died. It seems they were all destined to live. All 19 crew and 349 passengers all survived. How? What happened? Well, we'll answer that next time. This concludes part 1 of the QF30. Next week we will explain why all the people of the QF30 are so lucky to be alive. We will also attempt to answer why the gas cylinder exploded. An answer which those who investigated the incident were unable to find. Now if you want to email me a request or a question or you have some information you would like to share on Frederick Valentich or the QF30, you can email me at plentyofgas, one word, at y7mail.com or kyzka at y7mail.com Kiska being my nickname. Join me next time. Thank you for listening. Bye for now.